0: I want to take a moment to remind everybody that the subtitles, the captions are being automatically generated on the spot. So I think it said something about the bribe died for our sins and that's that's Jesus died for our sins. I don't know where where that came from, but that's um, it's the fun of using automatic captioning. All right, so. If we were to take the study that we have engaged in so far and line it up on a church calendar, the last few studies that we've engaged in follow Palm Sunday, in which we found out who Jesus is, that he is the son of David and, in fact, the son of God. It follows Good Friday, in which he suffered... He underwent his passion, and he died. And then Easter, which is what we're going to be talking about a little bit later this evening, wherein he rose from the dead. Bodily, physically, he rose from the dead. Now, as we think about that, We have Palm Sunday. Obviously, we're not spending too much time on the Passion Week because we go from Palm Sunday to Good Friday. But we're not going to jump from Good Friday to Easter with the Apostles' Creed. There is another step that the Apostles' Creed takes us on, and that is the journey, in essence, through Good Friday on into Easter. The Creed now highlights the most important event in human history— not just of Christianity, but of all human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But how do we get there? What happens before the resurrection? We have to get to Sunday through Friday. And so we get to this little phrase, he descended into hell. This is the only contentious part of the creed. It is heavily debated. Should we even have it in the creed? And one of the reasons it's debated is that it is a late edition. It is the latest edition. Uh, There is evidence that it could be as old as the 4th century. Even though I haven't seen exactly uh, what it would have looked like in the 4th century. It just looks like there's evidence that it may have been in the 4th century. That evidence comes from later, though. And so it could even be much later than the 4th century. It's contentious also because there were these medieval scholars in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, these theologians who ascribed unbiblical theories and speculation as to what is meant by hell here. What Jesus may have actually accomplished While being in hell. And that's something that's still being taught today. Uh, uh, There are teachers who say today, just like some of those scholars said, that Jesus had to go to hell because he had to suffer for our sins in hell. Now, how many of you have ever heard that notion before? Okay, one of you. It's obviously not something that's taught a lot in church. Because it is false. <laughs> That's why it's not taught a lot in church. It is false. Jesus did not have to die. I'm, I'm sorry. Jesus did not have to go to hell to suffer for our sins. He suffered for our sins on the cross. It's interesting how false teaching will take something like the suffering of Christ and expand it. Mormons, for instance, expanded into the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's when he started his suffering for us. And then we have uh, mainly word faith teachers. I've heard uh, Joyce Meyer specifically talking about this teaching that Jesus had to go and suffer. And she said something like his little worm had to burn in hell. You know, it was just just blasphemous, actually. Um, But it doesn't start with the word faith crowd, Kenneth Hagin and folks like that. It did start with some of these Roman Catholic theologians uh, and not all of them, obviously, but some of them did believe that he had to suffer for our sins there. He suffered in hell, so we don't have to, was the idea. But that's nowhere taught in scripture. And I would I would contend that that's not the point of the creed either here. That's, that's, that's not what's being suggested by, by Christians. And that's why we have that asterisk there, and this is the asterisk. And it says this. This refers to the realm of the dead not the place of punishment. It refers to the realm of the dead, not the place of punishment. Now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, but it says he went into hell. What is this distinction that's being made? Well, here's the thing. There is more than one kind of hell in scripture. There's more than one kind of hell in, In scripture. What are we talking about? Well when we're looking at hell in scripture. We come across different Greek words. For instance. There is. The Greek word. Gehenna. Gehenna. And it is a place. Of eternal torment. This is a place. I do believe it is real. Jesus talked about Gehenna. He used this term. When he, when he spoke, he didn't say the word hell because that word didn't exist yet as part of the vocabulary. He used the word Gehenna. Gehenna is a place that he described as one of everlasting fire and torment and outer darkness. And yes, the place where the worm doesn't die and it is a place that is the justified end of all sinners. Why? Because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. And so our punishment for sin, if God is to be just, must logically be an infinite punishment. Some people say, I, I have the trouble of picturing a place of fire and brimstone that's disturbing spirits. Okay, if, if the fire and brimstone are metaphorical in any way, then the situation is worse, not better. We're talking about something that will harm us eternally. That is the torment that is fit for us in hell. I don't want to go off onto too much of a tangent as to as to the biblical teaching of hell here, but it is something that our transgressions earn. But this is not the hell. Gehenna is not the hell that Jesus descended into. Gehenna is not the hell that Jesus descended into. There is another word, Greek word Hades, if we were to look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is Sheol. And so sometimes, if you have a more modern translation, you will even see Sheol come across in the Old Testament. A lot of times in the Psalms, you see Sheol appear. In the Greek, you see this term Hades. Hades. And you might even be familiar with that term from Greek mythology. Uh, it is a term that um, the Greek-speaking world was familiar with, and it's a term that, that got appropriated for Scripture. It is the term of the underworld. It's the realm of the dead, and it is no myth. It is something that happens to all of us. We all die. And when we die, we pass into Sheol or, or Hades, the underworld. Now, to be clear on this, Gehenna is not equal to Hades. Gehenna is not Hades. But Gehenna is in Hades. Hades, in other words, includes Gehenna. And so if we had these concentric circles, Gehenna is inside of Hades. Some people who go to Hades go to Gehenna. Others do not. And the difference there, of course, is whether one puts his trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we don't have to go to Gehenna. But Jesus himself also did not go to Gehenna. He went to Hades. That's the other word for hell. And it's confusing because the King James chose to translate these words. And there are a few other words like Tartarus. Uh, that 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 the New Testament uses, in which the King James chose the word hell every time, and that's what creates the confusion. Partly, what creates the confusion. Let's think about Hades for a moment, and that is the place. This is a term that Jesus also spoke of. He said in Matthew sixteen eighteen, a passage you might be familiar with. He promised there that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Well, the gates of Hades is the term he uses. The gates of Hades. Now, when I first read this, I was kind of confused about what this might mean. And for some reason, I always had in my mind just these, this, this picture of some kind of weird spiritual warfare uh, just, just as a younger man, and somehow we're attacking gates and gates are attacking us, but but that just doesn't make sense, right? Because gates are not offensive weapons, they're defensive. And gates are also entry points. Gates are how you get into a place. Well, what would be the gates what, what would be if if this is descriptive of something, the gates of Hades, what would be the gates of the underworld? Well, the gate would be death. It would be death. How do you get to the afterlife? How do you get to the underworld? You die. That's how. That's how. And so the, the gates are, are representative of death. You say, okay, well, I don't understand what this means then. Well, think about the terms. Uh, think about this in terms of the early church. The early church was persecuted. The disciples were persecuted. And who is leading that persecution ultimately? It's not the Jews. It's not the Romans. It's Satan. And Satan's most powerful tool that he has in his arsenal to try to stop the church is this. Death. And Jesus is saying that not even death will prevail against the church. say well he could have just said that Well, he did say that he just said it in a much more beautiful way the gates of Hades won't prevail against the church people Satan may try to kill Christians but it's not going to stop the church it's not going to stop the church hell might open up to try to swallow up the church and it won't be able to it won't be able to the church will never die no matter how much persecution there is, the church will never die. Right, it speaks of God's preservation, plus mm. the fact that the church, being God-loving Christians, will have eternal life. So even in death, death yeah, will prevail. yeah, the exactly. And that's a good point to add there. Yeah, even those Christians who do die because of persecution, they ultimately live. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> to die is gain for the Christian. <laughs> And so, no, the, deaths of, or the gates of Hades do not prevail against the church. So that gives us a picture of what's being spoken of here. Uh, um, this isn't saying that people won't ever go to hell if they believe in Christ. That's true. But this is actually speaking more of the physical death of the saints. The, the physical persecution that we face. Satan cannot use the most powerful tool in his arsenal, death, to stop the church. Now, there's another example of this, and that's in Luke chapter 16. And you can turn there. This is the the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And it is a parable. And you can take a look there. I don't think I have specific verses highlighted here, but you can take take a quick glance at it. The rich man, of course, was unrighteous, while Lazarus, even though he was poor, was righteous. And that's the point. They both died because we all die, whether we're righteous or unrighteous. We die. But what do we read of Lazarus? Angels carry him away. What do we read of the rich man? And he also died. That's it. We don't read of this angelic envoy carrying uh, carrying the rich man. He may have had those carriage rides or whatever in his life, but he didn't get that in his death. He just simply opened up his eyes in hell, in torment. But what kind of hell? Well, he was in Hades, but he was also in Gehenna. See, both... Lazarus and the rich man end up in Hades but we read of Lazarus that he's at Abraham's bosom which means that they're that they're reclining together they're having food together which was a position of 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 eating you kind of be next to each other and it's kind of described as being in the bosom of someone else he's actually with father Abraham they're feasting they're enjoying themselves while instead of the poor man looking in on the rich man eating now the rich man is looking in on Lazarus eating with Abraham and we read that the rich man is in torment he is in Gehenna while they both are in Hades one is in torment and the other is at peace now we can talk about uh, the Place where uh, Lazarus was. Uh, some have speculated that this was a completely different place called Paradise that's not there anymore, um, and that's that's possible. Um, what does Hebrews say though? Hebrews eleven thirty nine through forty. Hebrews eleven eleven thirty nine through forty I both in heaven. <laughs> yes <laughs> I, 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 I I would agree that they are both in heaven <laughs> absolutely you go ahead and read that for us whoever's got that And so, outside of Christ's work, uh, there, there there was a lacking of perfection. It was only in Christ's work that they would receive that perfection. And they did receive it. The Old Testament saints did receive it, as do the New Testament saints. Now, we're talking about Hades, of course. Hades, or Sheol in the Old Testament, just speak of death in general. And this is... If the term underworld disturbs you, we are talking just about death in general. That's that's really all there is. Um, When we read, then, in other words, for a moment I blanked, what does IOW mean? I typed that and I didn't remember what it meant. In other words, (laughs) he descended into hell or he died. He died. And so this is talking about death. He died. He died. Why did he die? He died for sins. He took on the sins of the world. And those who are in Christ, then they find that they have died with him to sin. And so there is a punishment that has been meted out on us for our sins, however that the on us there is in Christ. And so Christ has paid that penalty. He has become that substitution. He died. And the creed is just underlining that fact again and again and again. Remember, we read that he was crucified. Well what what is the end of crucifixion? Death. And then we read, and he died. And he was buried. Well okay yeah so so we're underlining the fact that he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. Let's have someone read Psalm 1610. Not abandon my soul to shale alright so here we have the Hebrew word for death or the grave prophetically speaking this is looking forward to Christ and we see that Christ will be raised this is ultimately what we're talking about when we see that he has descended into hell Now, some have asked, can this mean more than just simply he died? Well, that depends on what you mean. Does the creed mean more than he just simply died? I'm not sure that it does mean more than he just simply died. The only person, as Wayne Grudem points out in his systematic theology, the only person to include this phrase before the year 650 thought it meant Christ was buried. Now Wayne Grudem goes on to note that Philip Schaff, uh, in his in his uh, uh, book Creeds and Confessions, I believe is what it was called, uh, does does see an inclusion by the Arians, although he doesn't provide that inclusion, and he thinks that that it is misinterpreted then that uh, Jesus was buried, that there is something more going on. It is biblically possible, I would say, that there is something more going on, although this is something that's more debatable within Christendom. Um, a, a lot of us, I think, in this room probably disagree on the, on the exact meaning of this. First uh, Peter 3, 18 and 19 1 Peter 3, 18. And as you turn there, I'll go ahead and read it. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, I'm continuing on, verse 20, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Some people uh, disagree on what exactly this has meant. I think the standard Reformed position on this is that Jesus metaphorically or spiritually preached to the people of Noah's day through Noah, and that's that's the idea that that a lot of folks take with this. Um, now, exegetically, I, I'm not sure that can be supported uh, in the text, and just for the sake of time, I won't go into detail on that. Getting into the Greek of all of this, uh, I think it is possible that we are talking about uh, the spirits. That are, uh, that are locked away right now because of the sinfulness that in which they engage. This very well may be speaking of those spirits that uh, tried to ruin the world in Noah's day but are now imprisoned. And Jesus is going down and making proclamation to them. That is a possible reading there. Uh, But I am open to that. That's not a hill I'm necessarily willing to die on. Uh, But there is one other verse I think that's interesting in this this vein. And it's Colossians 2.15. And we see there that this is not just a private reality. It's not just a private reality. It's 2.15. We read there that he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so he made a public display of the rulers and authorities. And that doesn't just mean the physical rulers and authorities, but also the uh, authorities in high places, the 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 principalities and powers. He has uh, made a display over all of them. He has conquered Satan. He has conquered the fallen angels. He has conquered uh, all the disobedient spirits. And so that is a possible meaning here. But I don't want to press that too hard. Because we are looking at something that should unify us. And when we're talking about he descended into hell. I think all that's being emphasized is that he died. He died and so when we're considering that okay he is crucified so he died he died so he died he was buried so he died he descended into hell so he died that makes what comes next so important the third day he rose again from the dead See, this is underlining again and again and again so that we know that this resurrection from the dead is a true resurrection. See, some folks wonder about that. Did he literally arise? Did he literally get up out of the grave? I'm shocked at the number of people who claim to be Christians who wonder that. Now, I'm not going to say that if you're a baby Christian or new Christian that... Uh, you can't have wonders about certain things. As a young Christian, I wondered, well, is it really that important if we believe that? Although I did believe it, I was wondering, well, you know, do do all Christians have to believe this? And thankfully I was corrected, kind of, uh, you know, spiritually smacked by someone. And uh, I was given the right hand of correction. And <laughs> Don't believe this, you're not a Christian. <laughs> That's right. And yes, no, this is something you should believe. And the more I see it, the more the more I study scripture, the more true it is, the more valid I see it in scripture, and I'm stunned by the fact that people want to hold to scripture but then deny this point. And there are a lot of people today who 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 do this, who who wonder about it. Think about this. How did the disciples feel after Friday? Defeated. Defeated? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Go, let's go fishing. Yeah, let's go fishing. The men said the women came to prepare a dead body. We talk sometimes about the faith of the women. They came with herbs and spices expecting to see a dead Jesus in the tomb on the third day. No one really believed he was going to rise from the dead. Although the scribes and Pharisees were concerned that the disciples might try to stage something. But no one really believed he would rise from the dead. Of course, we see in Luke twenty twenty four the, the approach to the tomb. Let's, let's take a look there, Luke 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They found it. This is a surprise to them. The stone is rolled away. Okay, well, we don't have to worry about getting rid of the stone. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So so they're still expecting to find the body there. While they are perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Kids, who might these two men be standing next to him in dazzling clothing? Angels. (laughs) Got that help, but there you go. Angels. Yes. Yes, angels. And as the women were terrified... Because when you see angels, by the way, this is the response. You get terrified and you bow down. <laughs> There's no like, oh, I saw an angel. And I was like, oh, man, look at you. You're my guardian angel. And we kind of fist bump. And then we chest bump. And we're like, yeah. You know, no, no, that's not how it goes. You see an angel and you fall down in fear like a dead person. And so, so they bow down their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He has risen. Jesus told them they didn't dare to believe. They did not dare to believe that this could possibly be true. In fact, I guess they thought they were being rational about the situation. Much like people think they're being rational today. Yeah. Well, he said this, but he must have meant it in some metaphorical sense, because guess where we're going? We're going to go prepare the dead body. You know what just occurred to me Mm -hmm. is that even, well, even more so today, perhaps, people don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, rose from the dead, but they believe in the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you don't believe scripture, you'll believe anything right. but scripture. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, pe- people think they're being smart today if, if they're skeptical about the scripture. But tr- the truth is, if you don't believe the Bible, you'll believe anything but the Bible. You know, you're not necessarily going to be any, any wiser about things, any more discerning. In fact, you'll lose some of that. Because God's created us to believe all this. Consider the testimony of scripture. All four gospels, that's four different accounts... Record that he rose from the dead. That's in Luke 24 here that we just read, Matthew 28, Mark 16, and John 20. They all record that Jesus rose from the dead. And it says the consistent testimony, the external testimony to scripture uh, matches that as well. Uh, Oh, well, we can continue the testimony of scripture. Paul's words here, in this passage, invite investigation. In this passage that we read, First Corinthians 15, we we've seen that that he appeared first to to Peter and then and then to the twelve, uh, and then to the five hundred, and then last of all, as to one born untimely, to me as well. And so there's this listing, and that invites investigation. So some of these folks are still alive. You can ask them. Not all of them have fallen asleep. And so when Peter, or I'm sorry, when Paul is writing this, he's saying, ask around. If Jesus appeared to over 500 people, many of whom are still alive, guess what you can do? You can go and track down some of these folks and ask them, did you really see Jesus? There, there's no mass hallucination event that can explain something like this. This isn't like I, I was in the market one day and I bumped into someone and he had this beard. You know, just for a moment, just for a moment, I thought it was Jesus. But it wasn't. You know, we're not talking about something like that. We're talking about Jesus appearing to people and then teaching them and eating with them. This seems clear that the New Testament it wants us to believe that there was a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. And I have to be so exacting because there are people who, who, who say, yes, I believe Jesus rose from the grave, but they don't mean that his body actually got up out of the grave. There was this one debate with between James White and this, this this liberal guy, and it was about halfway into the into the debate uh, when the guy asked James White, "Wait a minute. So are you saying you actually believe he got up out of the grave?" <laughs> yes, yes. See, the liberal guy had already, had been saying, "Yeah, he believes that too," but he didn't believe you actually did. He, he like Jesus rose in our hearts or something. You know, this, this, you know. Every time we think about Jesus, He's alive to us. You know, something like that. He didn't actually believe that Jesus actually reconstituted Himself. His cells actually began to get warm again. His his fingers began to twitch. His eyes opened, and he stood up and got out of the grave. Jesus didn't just arise spiritually. This is something that was supernatural. And some would say, yeah, but this requires you to believe in the supernatural. That's right. That's right. The whole thing requires you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you think that this was going to be a book that didn't require some thinking on your part? Yes. They go to the tomb. The tomb is empty. Some say, no, no, no. This has to be something else. Maybe Jesus had a had someone who looked like him, a doppelganger, and and he convinced that guy to hang on the cross in his place. And then he and then Jesus is over there laughing. He's like, oh, I got them. Like like this Jesus, who's who's all about love your neighbor as yourself. Do you think Jesus would be talking someone into dying on the cross for him? Like no, no. That doesn't make sense. Maybe Jesus swooned and got better. That's one of my favorite ones. I love this one. You know, like like Jesus, like from the from the blood loss and the torture of the day, he's on the cross, and finally he goes, Oh, but he didn't die, he just passed out. And they took him off the cross, and you know, maybe his breathing was so shallow, they're like, Yeah, he looks dead. Can you imagine a trained Roman soldier who's seen death all of his life saying, yeah, yeah, sure he's dead. Yeah. (laughs) No, no. And then they laid him in this tomb after he had gotten beaten mercilessly. He's his backside had been opened up by the scourge. And he'd been hanging on the cross, which causes fluid to fill your lungs. You slowly asphyxiate on the cross. That's actually how you die. You slowly uh, suffocate from the fluid buildup in your lungs. And then for good measure, they stabbed him in a side through the heart. But all he had to do was just, just kind of lay down for a bit, and he got better. <laughs> and then he got up, what, moved the stone himself? This guy who had just, you know, had extensive trauma that our most advanced ERs today would have trouble with. And he just kind of like rolled this big old stone away and he just kind of walked away. Got past all the guards that were <laughs> that were guarding the stone. And, and then he said, hey, y'all, I'm, I'm back. Told you I'd be back. Ooh, that really worked out. <laughs> yeah. Or the disciples stole the body. Ooh. Now here's a good conspiracy theory for you. They stole the body, they got together and decided they were going to come up with a story that that Jesus rose again. They stole the body to, to, to prove that. They would have to keep up the charade while facing death, though. Because almost every one of the twelve disciples faced martyrdom. You don't think one of them would have slipped up at some point? Or John, as an old man, be like, oh yeah, we really got you guys with that one, didn't we? Like eventually you want credit for something that's been pulled off so so well. These, These fishermen, maybe they had a couple of swords. The Bible says they had a couple of swords between them. They took on these trained guards by the tomb, took them out, and then rolled the stone away, captured the body, took it somewhere, maybe buried it, I don't know, and then just made up this whole story. And somehow 500 people saw Jesus, I don't know. Maybe they brought him out, brought out the body, like, oh, gosh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to figure out how this makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Are, are, were they willing to die for a lie? That's, that's really the question. That's really the question. No. At some point, those unwilling to accept what the Bible says are willing to accept anything, which is what I said earlier. Any explanation, no matter how outlandish, if they can avoid having to accept what the Bible says. You say, well, is this important? Is it really that important? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. You read the first few verses a few minutes ago, not seven, 17, 1 Corinthians fifteen, seventeen. Paul says there, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. This is a man, by the way, who persecuted the Christians. All of a sudden now he's a believer? And he says something like this If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still dead in your sins. The resurrection did happen. And it is the linchpin of the Christian faith. In fact, verses 18 and 19 there say if Christ had not been raised, then those who had fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. This is either true or it isn't true. So what are some practical implications as we close? Well, what does the resurrection accomplish for us? We've talked about the fact of the resurrection. What does it accomplish for us? Well, in Christ's resurrection, we have justification for our sin. I'll go ahead and read that for you. That's Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans four twenty-five. We read there, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. He died for our sins. But he was raised for our justification. Part of his resurrection or the importance of his resurrection means that we have justification for our sin. Why? Because if God the Father did not accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for sin, he would have left the body of Jesus in the grave. The resurrection of Christ proves that we have justification for our sins. And in Christ's resurrection, we also now not only have justification, we have the power for Christian regeneration and sanctification. Well, what does that mean? Well, in 1 Peter 1.3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been caused to be born again through the resurrection. We now have new life because of the resurrection. So we don't just have justification, we also have new life. We have eternal life. We have Christian regeneration, and we have sanctification. And we have a future. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, First Corinthians 15, by the way, the whole chapter is a chapter on the resurrection. And so if you weren't familiar with that, I'd encourage you to read that this evening. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be Changed, For this perishable must put on the imperishable and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable or corruptible and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just thinking about that, the, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's just amazing. The resurrection of Christ has all of these practical implications for us. And so, yes, it is important. It's important that it actually happened. And it's important that we believe it. Because through the resurrection of Christ, we have new life.